0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Fugitives from Justice, where I tell you stories of criminals on the run from the law. This episode details a case of a young man accused of committing two rapes while still in high school. Before he could be tried on these charges, he fled the jurisdiction and disappeared for eight years before he was finally brought to justice. This is the case of the fugitive, Alex Kelly. Just an additional warning before we begin. This episode includes details about the crime of rape. If that subject is particularly triggering for you, please take that into consideration before listening. Darien, Connecticut, a town of 20,000, located on Long Island Sound, is one of the wealthiest communities in the U.S. Darien made Bloomberg's list of America's richest places, ranking in the top 10 with an average household income of over $340,000. Some of its famous residents have included aviator Charles Lindbergh, NBC executive Grant Tinker, and actor Robert Downey Jr. Its most infamous resident is Alex Kelly. Kelly grew up in the Norriton Heights neighborhood of Darien. His father Joe, a plumber by trade, was a self-made man. Setting up his own plumbing and heating company, which he ran out of his home office, he built a successful business servicing the mansions of the town's wealthy professionals. He was smart with his money, investing in real estate, which added to his own wealth. Joe and his wife, Melanie, a travel agent, purchased a large home on Christie Hill Road, where they raised their three boys, Chris, Alex, and Russell. Melanie, formerly Reesdorf, came from a well-to-do family, and her family had provided her and her children with a substantial trust fund. Alex, born in nineteen sixty seven was an honor student at Darien High School and co-captain of his wrestling team. He was popular, handsome, and privileged. So it was a surprise to his parents and community when he and a group of high school buddies were arrested in 1984 for a series of burglaries. Over nine months in 1983 and 1984, when he was a high school sophomore, Kelly and his friends broke into the homes of neighbors and stole jewelry, cash, and other valuables. As a side note, this is reminiscent of the Menendez brothers, two sons of a prominent and wealthy family who spent their teenage years burglarizing their Beverly Hills neighbors. They would later infamously be charged and convicted of double homicide when they gunned down both of their parents in cold blood. In May of 1984, Alex Kelly was stopped while driving with a suspended license. His girlfriend at the time was in the passenger seat. The officer noticed him pass a bag to the girl. He asked her to hand it to him, but she refused. She then threw the bag to Kelly who was standing outside of the car, and he ran with it towards Darien High School. As he ran, Kelly tore the bag open and began dumping its contents. He dropped the entire bag before running into the school. Alex Kelly was arrested for possession of stolen property. He squealed on his friends, several of whom were also arrested. On June 15, 1984, Kelly was charged with nine counts of larceny and nine counts of burglary. He was released on a $10,000 bond provided by his parents. Joe and Melanie Kelly also reimbursed their son's victims for the stolen items to the tune of $100,000. Kelly could have received a sentence of up to 35 months in a juvenile rehabilitation facility, but ultimately would only serve two. He returned to Darien High School for his senior year in 1985. He continued on the wrestling team, becoming co-captain after an undefeated season. He was dating a pretty blonde named Amy Molitar, who thought the sun rose and set on her boyfriend. However, Kelly's behavior was still problematic. Some would report that he had a serious alcohol problem. He was arrested after getting into a fight at an ice hockey rink. His parents paid a fine, and he was released. School was out of session for the winter break on Friday, February 10, 1986, when Alex Kelly attended a party at another student's home. Adrienne Bach had just turned 16 years old five days earlier and was also invited to the party. Note, at the time of the crime, Adrienne's name was not released to the press. She has since come forward and identified herself as a victim and given interviews about the crime and its aftermath. For these reasons, I am also identifying her by name in this episode. Adrienne had an 11.30 curfew that night and it was getting closer to the time she was expected home. She started asking around for a ride, but no one was quite ready to leave the party. Alex Kelly overheard her request for a ride and offered to give her lift home. Adrienne attended an all-girls Catholic school and had never met Alex Kelly. She knew he was a friend of some of her friends and that he was a senior at Darien High School, but that was all. Desperate to get home on time so she wouldn't end up grounded for the rest of her winter break, she accepted. At 11.25 p.m., she called her father to let him know she was on her way home, but might be a couple of minutes late. It was only a short drive from the party to Adrienne's house. She would remember that Alex was very quiet on the drive. She tried to make small talk, but he would only give one-word answers, and the drive was awkward. Suddenly, he asked her if she wanted to go to his house to smoke marijuana. She said no. Adrienne was raised in a conservative Catholic family and was a good student and an obedient daughter. Nothing about Kelly's offer was tempting to her. At a stop sign, he leaned across the seat and tried to kiss her, but she leaned away from him. Kelly kept driving, and Adrian pointed out that they had just passed her house. Instead of turning the car around, he continued down the road, coming to a dead end about 200 feet from her front door. There were no lights at that end of the street. Kelly stopped the car and turned off the headlights. It was pitch black. He locked the doors to the Jeep Wagoneer, a vehicle he had borrowed from his girlfriend. Adrienne realized she was locked in. Adrienne said that the next sequence of events happened so fast that she almost had no time to react. Kelly grabbed her by the throat with one hand and squeezed hard. He told her that she was going to have sex with him or he was going to kill her. With his other hand, he reached behind her and pulled on a lever which dropped the front seat back he forced her into the back seat. With his hand still squeezing her throat, he forced her to undress and then raped her. After it was over, bleeding and in pain, Adrian sobbed and asked him why he had done this to her. He told her he didn't know and said he, quote, couldn't control himself, unquote. She dressed and he drove back down the street, parking in front of her home. Before letting her out of the car, Kelly threatened her, saying if she told anyone, he would rape her again and then kill her. Adrian entered her house, ran straight up to her room, and curled up in a ball on her bed. She was in pain and also remembers being devastated that she was no longer a virgin. She had been taught that she was to remain pure until marriage, and now that had been taken from her by force. Her older sister Kristen arrived and, realizing that something was wrong, dragged the story out of her. Kristen then told her parents, who took Adrian first to the hospital and then the police station. But although Adrian reported what had happened, she was terrified that Kelly would find out and make good on his threats. She could not be convinced to press charges. She had believed him when he said he would kill her if she told anyone and was even terrified that he might have been watching her as she entered the police station. She and her parents left the station without filing a report. Four days after Alex Kelly raped 16-year-old Adrian Bach, he attended another party in Darien. 17-year-old Hilary Tollette lived in the nearby town of Stamford and had attended the party with friends. She stood outside smoking a cigarette while waiting for the friend she had come to the party with to return from dropping someone off. Alex Kelly came outside and got into his Jeep. He saw Hilary standing alone outside and asked her if she wanted to sit inside his car to get out of the cold. She said no thanks. She was just going to finish her cigarette and head back into the party. She didn't know Kelly. He kept asking, so finally she agreed. He seemed like a normal guy, she later stated. Although she didn't know him, she wasn't at all concerned for her safety since they would just be sitting in the car right in front of the house where the party was happening. Hillary wasn't in the car for more than a minute or so before Kelly, without saying anything, drove off with her in the passenger seat. He stopped just a short while later, pulling the Jeep into the back parking lot of a nearby country club. Suddenly he turned and grabbed her by the throat. He forced her into the back of the Jeep and began attempting to sexually assault her. Hillary fought back with all her strength, but she was no match for Kelly, who was bigger and stronger and a wrestling champion. The more she struggled, the more violent he became. She finally stopped fighting in order not to be hurt even worse. When it was over, Kelly drove her back to the party, and before letting her out of the car, threatened to kill her if she told anyone. She immediately left the party with a friend who drove her home. She told her mother about the assault, and they went directly to the emergency room. When the rape was reported at the hospital, the police were contacted. The responding officer was the same woman who had interviewed Adrian Bach just days before. The details of both attacks were almost identical. But this time, Kelly's victim was angry and quickly agreed to press charges. A rape kit was done and photographs were taken that showed extensive bruising on her body and especially around her throat. She identified Alex Kelly as her rapist. The next day, Kelly was arrested at his high school and brought into police headquarters to be booked. He argued with the officers and said he was innocent. He was angry that he was missing a scheduled wrestling match. He was charged with first-degree sexual assault, unlawful restraint, and threatening his victim. Adrienne Bach was told that her rapist had been arrested for a second assault. She was devastated and felt guilty that she had not pressed charges. She felt partially responsible for the other girl's attack and felt that if she'd had the courage to report Kelly right away, it wouldn't have occurred. She told the police she wanted to press charges now. Kelly was now charged with two counts of rape and kidnapping. His parents put up the $200,000 bond using their home as collateral to release their son from jail so he could continue his senior year of high school. However, the school administrators wouldn't allow the accused rapist to return to classes with the other students and instead graduated him early. He was angry about not being able to graduate with his class and his parents protested, but the decision stood. Alex Kelly formerly a popular honor student and athlete, was persona non grata in Daria now that his rape charges were common knowledge. Once his arrest was reported in the papers, his past criminal history was also made public. He was even accosted by a group of people in a restaurant. Still, Kelly had his supporters who took his word that the charges leveled against him were false and that he had only engaged in consensual sex with his two accusers. The town was divided with the stories about Alex Kelly's alleged misdeeds polarizing the once tranquil town of Darien. While he awaited his upcoming trial, his attorney thought it was a good idea for Kelly to leave Darien until the proceedings were scheduled to begin in February of 1987. They petitioned the court for permission for Kelly to leave the jurisdiction, and the request was granted. Kelly left for Colorado, residing in Leadville, a small town flanked by the Arkansas River and the Rocky Mountains. It was popular with tourists for hiking and fishing in summer, and skiing in the winter. Ironically, Leadville historically became known as one of the most lawless towns in the West soon after the gold rush. Doc Holliday, the infamous gambler and gunfighter, spent some of his final days in the town, moving there just after the historic gunfight at the O.K. Corral in 1881. He was arrested in 1885, after shooting a bartender in a local saloon. He admitted to the shooting, but claimed it was in self-defense and was acquitted. He left town soon afterward and succumbed to tuberculosis two years later. In Leadville, Alex Kelly took part-time jobs in restaurants and, always an avid skier, spent time on the many slopes near the resort town during his off hours. Jury selection was set to begin for his first rape trial in Connecticut on February 18th. On February 12th, Joe and Melanie Kelly flew to Colorado to visit their son. Before leaving Connecticut, they reportedly had a meeting with Alex's defense attorney, who told them that he feared their son wouldn't, quote, get a fair shake, unquote, at trial, due to the negative press about him in the lead-up to the trial. The Kellys spent the weekend at a ski resort with their son before flying home. They reported that Alex was tying up some final details before heading back to Connecticut. They flew home first with their son scheduled to follow in a couple of days. Alex's parents and attorney were in court for jury selection on February 18th, but Alex was not. As the hours and then days wore on, prosecutors concluded that the accused rapist had skipped town. Now another charge was added, this time by the FBI. Unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Alex Kelly disappeared just days before he was set to stand trial for the rapes of two teenage girls. His parents said they had no idea where he was and had not heard from him. The prosecutor believed that the Kellys had flown out to meet their son with a plan to help him escape punishment. They had the money to aid him in his flight, and the DA also pointed out that Melanie Kelly was a travel agent who had the ability to arrange flights and other travel arrangements at her fingertips. Kelly could have been hiding anywhere in the world, and his two victims not only felt cheated by not having their day in court, but were also terrified that he would now make good on his threat to harm them or even kill them. What would stop him now, they thought. Their lives virtually came to a standstill waiting to hear of his capture. Most thought it would be a matter of days before Kelly was caught and brought to justice. He was young and surely would make a mistake or just be incapable of staying on the run for very long, money or no money. But after months passed, two things were certain. He had to be getting help from others and that everyone had underestimated Alex Kelly's ability to remain at large. After six months passed with no sightings of the fugitive, Connecticut Governor William O'Neill issued a $20,000 reward for his capture. The Kellys were in danger of losing their home when they were ordered to pay back the $200,000 bond they had put up as a promise that their son would appear for trial. The FBI was seeking Alex Kelly on an unlawful flight charge But four years passed, and still, there was no sign of him. In 1994, FBI agent Ralph DeFonso was assigned to the Kelly case. Looking over all the information gathered in the almost eight years since Kelly had fled, DeFonso believed the answer lay with his parents. He believed Kelly had to be receiving financial support to survive on the run for so long the FBI, in conjunction with the Connecticut State Police, were finally able to convince a judge to issue a search warrant for the Kelly home. The warrant produced some of the answers authorities needed to find Alex Kelly. In the Kelly home, pictures were discovered of Joe and Melanie with Alex during his time on the run. It proved that they knew his whereabouts for at least some of the time. Investigators were also able to obtain financial records showing that monthly wire transfers had gone out from the Kelly's bank accounts to provide financially for their fugitive son. And there were letters. A letter from Alex Kelly to his parents bragged about the wonderful time he was having, as if he was on a very long vacation. In fact, Kelly had traveled all over the world, visiting Greece and Japan, but spending most of his time on the ski slopes of Europe and Scandinavia. I would like to live like this forever, he wrote in one letter. The search warrant also turned up an unposted letter among his mother's possessions. It was addressed to a woman named Elizabeth Jansen. The address on the envelope led the authorities to an island located off the coast of Sweden. Investigators discovered that Janssen, aged 25, was Alex Kelly's fiancée, whom he was living with on the remote island. The couple had met during a ski trip in 1990. Authorities announced they would charge Joe and Melanie Kelly with obstruction of justice. As a result, Alex Kelly's money supply was cut off. This, along with the possibility that his parents would be charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive, forced Alex Kelly to surrender. Now 27 years old, Kelly turned himself into Swedish authorities on January 19, 1995. Prosecutors believed that the fugitive chose Switzerland in an attempt to avoid extradition. Kelly most likely believed that Sweden's extradition treaty with the U.S. would make it more difficult to have him return to the States. In fact, it was months after his surrender that he was finally able to be extradited to the U.S. Kelly stood before a U.S. judge in May of 1995, represented by a top-notch attorney paid for by his parents. Thomas Puccio had been a federal prosecutor before going into private practice had represented Klaus von Bülow in a much-publicized, high-profile case. Von Bülow, a wealthy socialite, was accused of attempting to murder his wife, Sunny. She had fallen into a vegetative state after authorities believed von Bülow had injected her with a high dose of insulin. After being convicted of murder, Depuccio won an appeal for von Bülow, and he was eventually acquitted after a second trial. Incredibly, Di was able to argue successfully that Kelly be released on a $1 million bond paid for by, say it with me, his parents. He was required to wear an ankle monitor and was given a court-imposed curfew between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. He was, however, allowed to attend classes at the local community college, but only, if you can believe it, accompanied by one of his parents. And yet, and yet, Alex Kelly was still acting as if he didn't have a care in the world there were reports of Kelly hanging out at bars in Stanford, chatting up the women there, and even talking about his upcoming rape trial. In 1996, he professed his innocence to a group of women in a bar, and after becoming intoxicated, began making obscene gestures towards them. When police were called, Kelly was belligerent, arguing and cursing at responding officers. In 1997, just a few days before the rape trial was set to begin, an officer on patrol in Darien observed a white Nissan speeding and driving erratically past the Weeburn Country Club. He clocked the car as going 55 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone. As the police car began to follow, the driver sped up in an attempt to lose him, racing up winding roads and then doubling back before losing control of the vehicle. The car flipped over, and miraculously, he emerged from the wreckage and fled on foot. An injured woman remained in the passenger seat. It was Amy Molotar, Alex Kelly's high school girlfriend, whom he'd reconnected with after returning to Darien. It was her Nissan sports car he was driving, just as it was her Jeep that he had borrowed on those fateful nights in 1986. Kelly fled the scene of the accident, abandoning his injured passenger, and ran to his parents' home just blocks away. While Amy was transported to the hospital with cuts and broken ribs, Kelly calmly answered the door to officers and denied having any knowledge of the crash. The officer wrote in his report, quote, I detected a strong order of alcoholic beverage on Kelly's breath as we spoke, unquote. A police tracking dog traced a scent from the scene of the crash to the back door of the Kelly home. But with Amy Molotar denying Alex Kelly had been involved, they were unable to arrest him at the scene. After additional investigation into the crash, an arrest warrant was issued two days later. Kelly then turned himself into police, but pled not guilty to the charges of speeding, evading responsibility in a serious crash, and interfering with an officer. Earlier that summer, Elizabeth Janssen arrived from Sweden and was a constant supportive presence for her fiancé during his first court appearances. When interviewed by ABC News, she strongly rejected the idea that Alex Kelly could have ever raped anyone. That could never have been him, she said. That's not the person he is. However, once she returned to Sweden, Amy Molotar took her place and was seen holding hands and patiently sitting with Kelly in court. Kelly's defense got its first win when the judge agreed to separate the two rape trials. The first trial for the kidnapping and rape of Adrian Bach began in November of 1996. The defense portrayed Adrian as a girl who got drunk, consented to have sex, and then regretted it later and cried rape. However, several witnesses for the prosecution testified that Adrian appeared to be completely sober that night. Adrian herself took the stand. Now 26 and married, she went through the details of the attack, which were still vivid in her mind. She sobbed at times, but made a strong witness for the prosecution. On cross-examination, the defense tried to throw doubt on Kelly's ability to fold down the Jeep's front seat and force Adrian into the back, while, as she testified, keeping his other hand on her throat. But the prosecution was ready with an expert witness who attested tested two 1983 Jeep Wagoneers and testified that the seat could be folded down with only one hand. The jury deliberated for three days, but sent word that they could not reach a unanimous verdict. A mistrial was declared. The retrial began the following spring. This time, the jury only deliberated for a few hours before finding Alex Kelly guilty. He was sentenced to 17 years in prison. The second trial was set, but the forensic evidence was much stronger this time. After Hillary Tollett's attack, a rape kit had been taken. There were also photos of her injuries taken immediately afterward. Kelly must have seen the writing on the wall because he changed his plea from not guilty to no contest before the trial began. In December of 1998, he was sentenced to an additional 10 years in prison. But the sentences were to run concurrently, almost guaranteeing that Kelly would be released from prison in just 15 to 17 years. Even so, it seems Alex Kelly always believed he should be given special considerations, and he often was. In 2004, he petitioned for early release. In 2005, after serving only eight years in prison, he went before the parole board. His victims were allowed to attend. He expressed his remorse and apologized to Adrian and Hillary, but gave a strange reason for his crimes, saying that in his youth he was, quote, hyper-competitive. He told the parole board that he now realized he had been self-centered in his youth. He expressed that he had matured and now realized that the world didn't center around him. The board returned with its decision. They denied Kelly early release and told him he would not be eligible for any more parole considerations before his scheduled release date. Kelly then showed his true colors. He became angry and argued with the board, saying, Why did I even come here today? While they admonished him and told him that the proceedings had concluded, he continued to react angrily, adding, Really, what was even the point? Seventeen years still did not seem fair to his victims, especially since he'd avoided prosecution for eight and then was free on bond for two more years until his conviction. And yet, Alex Kelly spent only the same amount of years in prison as he'd spent on his prolonged European vacation while evading authorities. He was released in 2007 on good behavior after serving just 10 years. He was also required to serve 10 years probation and register as a sex offender and pay a $10,000 fine. Joe and Melanie Kelly were not charged with the crime of aiding a fugitive. Some were outraged by this. Others expressed some sympathy and understanding. They would say, What if it was your child? Wouldn't you do anything to help him? While Alex Kelly was still a fugitive, one of their other sons, Chris, died of a drug overdose. In 2004, while Alex was still in prison, his other brother, Russell, died as a result of a car accident. Alex was now the Kelly's only living child, some believed that they had suffered enough and didn't want to see them face serious consequences, even if they had helped their son while he was on the run from the law. Joe Kelly wasn't as sympathetic a figure as his wife, however. He often reacted in anger during the trial, once cursing at the prosecutor. After his son's extradition back to the States, during an interview with Forrest Sawyer on Turning Point, he said, Alex was one brave kid to do what he did, right or wrong. Four other women would later accuse Alex Kelly of rape. They alleged the attacks had occurred when he was a teenager. Another woman who lived in the Bahamas would accuse him of rape during the time he was a fugitive. He has never been charged with any of these alleged crimes. (music) Upon leaving prison, Alex Kelly became a skydiving instructor in Connecticut. Reportedly, he left the company he was working for in 2014 after incidents of, quote, erratic behavior were reported by his employer. He allegedly punched one coworker after accusing him of using his equipment. He was also accused of groping another male employee's genitals. The Associated Press also released information discovered through a Freedom of Information Act that showed Kelly had threatened to beat up a pilot after they had argued over the use of an aircraft. A female coworker described Kelly as having, quote, no regard for anyone else, unquote. The following year, it was reported that he had purchased his own aircraft, a Cessna 182, and filed paperwork to open his own skydiving business. In 2017, after becoming a certified flight instructor, he opened Green Mountain Skydiving in Bennington, Vermont. In 2018, he launched a second business in North Adams, Massachusetts, Berkshire Skydiving. There, he also served as a skydiving instructor and participated in tandem jumps with both male and female customers. Tandem jumps are where the student is strapped to the body of the instructor as they dive. When Kelly first sought to lease the business space at the small airport in North Adams, he had to apply for approval from the airport commission. When his lease was delayed for months, Kelly began complaining about being treated unfairly and got into tense confrontations at commission meetings. Finally, his lease was approved, but by the fall of 2018, his business was investigated for allegations of safety violations and misconduct by Kelly. In November of 2018, he abruptly withdrew from his lease. As of this date, it appears that both of these businesses have been closed. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. The year is just flying by, and we have just one more Fugitive episode left in November. I have some really special treats planned for the show to wrap up in the last month of the year. It's the holidays, and I like to give you a little something different before I take a much-needed end-of-year break. So be looking forward to that, and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything. Also, we're inching closer to 10,000 Twitter followers. If you're not yet following us on Twitter, you can find us at Upon a Crime. I do a lot of fun stuff there from sharing news items, retweeting info about other great podcasts, and even doing impromptu Ask Me Anything sessions. I hope you'll join me there. If you're already a follower on Twitter, you can help the show out by retweeting our posts to your own followers. Thanks. Don't forget that you can also become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash once upon a crime to get early release and ad free episodes, bonus content, and a welcome gift pack in the mail. We're also now a Stitcher Premium show. If you're a Stitcher Premium member, you can get all Once Upon a Crime episodes ad-free, along with many other podcasts. Go to stitcher.com or download the Stitcher app. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.